Pearson is very pleased to sponsor this series of JogPod. Pearson provide a blend of content, curricula, assessment and training to make the teaching and learning of geography at GCSE and A-level more engaging and effective. For more information about our geography qualifications, please visit us at qualls.pearson.com forward slash geography or follow us on Twitter at edxl underscore jog. Hi there, welcome to another job pod. Today, it's a great pleasure to be talking to Dominic Dyer by an amazing and fortunate coincidence, because Dominic, you're one of Britain's leading wildlife protection campaigners. You're a writer, you're a broadcaster, you've done all sorts. And yesterday of all days, the Dasgupta Review on Economics of Diversity was launched. And I, I know you've said it's a groundbreaking piece for teachers, for academics, for students, for business. It's, it's a huge review, which we really need to be talking about. Um, but before we do that, it'd be interesting for the, for the listeners just to understand a bit about your background, because you've had a quite, quite an unusual path to where you are, because you had a long career in government and industry. You started working at the Ministry of Agriculture when you were, I think, 17, and you've worked in a whole range of policy areas, both in the UK and Brussels. You've worked in marine protection, EU farming, trade policies. But then you used all that expertise to become a, a powerful voice for wildlife protection and the welfare, and pretty much globally across the world. So it's, it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for joining us today. Not at all. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. Thank you. Um, yeah, and a lot of people ask me, you know, you get a lot of young people particularly asking me about how did you get to become where you are in that sense in your, your area of work at the present time. And I often say to them, it wasn't really a plan. <clears throat> you know, I left school at 15 with a few O-levels. I didn't go to university. My father lost his job in the North of England and came to the South of England. Like many people at that time in the late 80s, it was difficult for employment in, in the North. Um, so I sort of started working on a building site doing sheet metal work to begin with. Um, I wasn't great with my hands, really. And I, I was offered an apprenticeship in it. It was a good apprenticeship if I'd have taken it, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I wanted to sort of get in working in an office type environment. And the, and the Evening Standard had adverts for the Civil Service Commission just for administrative assistant grade, you know, starter grade in the civil service. And in those days, you went through a sort of clearing bank where you went for an interview, but you didn't know what department you might end up in. And I went along and had an interview and they, they liked me. I, I spoke very well and, and you know, it went well. And uh, they said, well, we'd like to offer you a job, but we can't tell you what department we're going to send you to. We'll, we'll come back to you next week. <laughs> so, you know, my life could have been very different. They sent me to social security or, you know, department of education. That could have been the end of me. Um, but they actually sent me to the Ministry of Agriculture. The first place I went to was their legal department. And uh, that was basically carrying bags for lawyers to go into court on sort of animal cruelty prosecution cases. The first one was Lincoln Crown Court, I think, for a farmer that had legally poisoned dogs on his land. So straight away, I was sort of getting involved in areas that I was quite interested in. And, you know, the civil service in those days was a great opportunity for people who didn't have a, a significant amount of formal education or been to university to learn about the, the workings of government. You know, by my sort of early 20s, I was working in marine environment protection policy areas and then on to trade policy and then going to Brussels because the amount of work that we were doing in the European Union, it's funny now we're on the other side of the debate, but in those days, the European Union was enlarging. There was a lot more work on trade policy and things to be done. And so I was going into what were called management committee areas where we were looking at various aspects of trade policy and, and supporting ministers and senior officials. So, you know, in my early 20s, I spent a lot of my time in and out of the European Commission, European Parliament. 
And again, you just learn an awful lot about politics and about people and about how government works. I also got involved in the trade union movements at that time, um, got to know Mo Molam in the Labour Party, who was an amazing politician. You might know that unfortunately yes. died many years ago, but was a leading figure in the Good Friday Accords as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland in, in Blair's early government in 97 onwards. Um, she set up a sort of new young Labour movement and she said, listen, Dominic, I like the way you speak. So I was doing quite a lot of speaking about trade union stuff. And could you come and help us? We're trying to reach out to young people a bit more. And I was only 21 at the time. Um, so I said, yeah, fine, I'd, I'd like to do it. So I got together with Mo Molam and Peter Mandelson and one or two other people. And we started to work with Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, bringing them into schools. Um, that was in 95, 96. And um, one of the first occasions when I really started to understand about how important the environment could be to politics is when we brought Tony Blair into Southfield School in Wimbledon. Um, and all the people in the audience were six formers and they would be 18 at the next election. So they were going to be first time voters, effectively. And so he was speaking to, you know, this new electorate. Tony Blair, as you know, has always been an eloquent speaker and he was at the top of his game in those days. He could go into an audience and win them over. And I'd seen him speak to lots of adult audiences and they would be, yeah, this is great. He didn't really inspire the young people because he talked a lot about education and crime and all the things that were important on the big political front, but he didn't talk about the environment. And then he came to questions and like all the questions are about the environment. They were about recycling and whaling and fur farming and cosmetic testing. And he did his best to answer them. He didn't really have answers to them you just said well look at this it's important we fully understand you know your concerns but i remember in the sort of wash-up session afterwards and saying what the hell happened and i said well this is probably where you're beginning to understand that there's a whole group of individuals out there that care passionately about issues that you're maybe not connecting to but it needs to be looked at so out of that came a, a sort of an animal welfare manifesto that the labor party in opposition put together and you might remember if you that at that time had a nice white rabbit on the front because it was talking about cosmetic testing and things and, and and there were lots of commitments in there to shut fur farms there were a number in the UK so they were to be closed and that did happen to move forward on banning EU cosmetic testing you know through our in membership of the EU which finally did come about over 10 years later the hunting act came about in 2004 um work on whaling and other things um lots of good stuff to be quite frank but it did teach me about that connection between politics and the environment, how important it was electorally. Now, interestingly enough, all those young people in that school today are going to be in their late 30s, early 40s with their own children probably now. Mm -hmm. So um, as to whether they still feel so passionate or their own children will feel so passionate is, is a question to be answered. But after you know that period of working in the civil service, I went to work in the Food and Drink Federation. Interestingly enough, the first job I got there was trying to deal with a, a dispute between uh, Indian and Pakistani rice growers. Uh, I was recruited primarily, I knew the Food and Drink Federation because it's a trade body I work closely with in my time in agriculture. And they sort of contacted me and said, listen, Dominic, we've got a problem. We've got the Food Standards Agency came up with an adulteration test for basmati rice, which is grown in the foothills of the Himalayas, which is disputed territory between India and Pakistan. And in 2000, those two countries are at the verge of nuclear war. And um, Bill Clinton, towards the end of his presidency, literally had to intervene to stop them going to war. Um, so it was really, really contentious. And this test basically led companies like Tilda that had a very well-known brand, as you know, in our stores and, and retailers mm -hmm. to say, listen, there's lots of dodgy rice being passed off here and it shouldn't be basmati, you can call basmati. So I had to go in and try and work with the, the, the rice association, the millers, the traders to try and calm things down, which I did on television and media and through various bits. But it was a, a real sort of ordeal of fire, but I enjoyed it. It brought some of my interest in politics and diplomacy and food and the environment together. And then, you know, soon after I arrived at the Food and Drink Federation, Sylvia Jay became director general. Her husband, Peter Jay, went on to head the foreign office. Um, so he became the firm sec. And he, she, he'd been ambassador to Paris when Diana had died. And his star had risen because, as you appreciate, it was a make or break situation that night in Paris. You know, you're either going to rise to this and deal with this terrible event 
um, or it was all going to go terribly wrong. So he managed the whole process very well. And Sylvia was, I decided, was one of these individuals that was brilliantly connected, knew everyone in politics, including Tony Blair and Sherry Blair and everyone else. So when she came to the Food and Drink Federation, she sat down with me and said, Dominic, I know you've worked in a lot of areas on the environment, organic foods and things like that. A lot of our food manufacturers, the big guys, including Nestle and Unilever and stuff, all want to look at this stuff more. Can we do more to set up industry groups looking at sustainable sourcing, vegetarian, vegan foods, organic foods, functional foods? So that's where I spent a lot of my time is sort of developing all this know-how and, and, and connecting with the groups and setting them up and bringing industry together so they could understand the environmental concerns, the labeling, the marketing, the issues around bringing new products to market. And working with new companies like Linda McCartney Foods, which Paul was still very much involved with, with his daughter Mary at the time, Cauldron Foods, which you might know is a very well-known vegetarian food manufacturer that's grown inside since um, Alpro, which was part of a, a company called Vanden Mortel in Belgium in those days, which has grown into a bigger company today. So a lot of these companies, you know, and also um, Corn, which is an AstraZeneca ICI combination company, really, which was to produce initially a product, uh, fungus protein for the developing world, which turned into a high-end health food product, <laughs> as we know, for, for consumers here in, in, in Europe and North America and other places. So I was doing a lot of that work, and I, I loved it. I spent eight years traveling around Europe and North America, around South America, China, Japan, doing a lot of talking and speaking and working with industry. And then in 2008, I got the chance to go and work in a far more controversial area, which was plant science. I was offered the job of chief executive of the Crop Protection Association to work with Monsanto, Syngenta, Bayer, companies like that on seed production, genetic modification issues, plant protection issues. Um, and at the time, you had this massive spike in food prices in 2008. You had a combination of bad weather events in Australia and um, India and other places and a massive shift towards people eating more meat globally. And so suddenly, you know, the whole demand for soy and things went through the roof and food prices went up at a level we hadn't seen since the 1973 Yom Kippur War on oil crisis. So it was a real big shock to the world. And Gordon Brown had to sort of head up in a summit in Jeddah and everyone was running around saying, you know, food prices and food riots were going to break out, which they began to in certain countries. So a lot of the technology that the companies I was working with, controversial it might be, but they were able to say, listen, without this technology, we're not going to be able to grow enough food. And we need to continue to work along those lines. That debate is coming back now very, very strongly. And we'll talk about that a little bit longer. So, you know, that was an issue. In that time, I became trustee of a charity called Care for the Wild, spent more time in Africa, got very interested in poaching issues around elephants, particularly written a few articles about the need for our military to get more involved in Kenya and other places, and more interested in British wildlife as well. The trouble with my job in the crop protection industry meant I had to work very closely with the farming industry. And um, that brought me into conflict on one particular issue, which was badger culling and bovine TB, where we had a situation where, you know, we had a coalition government had just come in in 2010 with David Cameron heading it. And they were basically going to move towards a coal policy. I was also then chair of a charity that was opposed to the coal policy and wanted to campaign against it. So it was a bit of a conflict of interest situation. I had to make a decision as to whether I stuck with this high paid lobbying job or if I moved into wildlife conservation to do what I felt was more important to me. And that's one of those moments where you just got to make a decision. Fortunately, my partner really supported the work I did and said, Dominic, even though it means taking a pay cut, you know, if you're doing something you really believe in and you can actually bring something to it because you've got all this knowledge in industry and politics and everything. If you can apply that to this issue and others, then maybe, you know, you'll feel better in the long term and you can achieve more. That was over 10 years ago. And then I've gone into wildlife campaigning since, headed the Badger Trust, got involved working with Care for the Wild, merged into Born Free, and I'm working for policy areas of Born Free still today. And I sit on various boards, write books and do things around wildlife and conservation, which is why you're speaking to me today. But my history is, is a broad one. But everything that I've done to this point really remains terribly relevant, be it about agriculture, population, plant science, wildlife protection, uh, farming systems. As you can appreciate, they all come together. It puts you in a, it puts a unique position, I think, because you're, I've come across 
misunderstandings, I think, with politicians, just in the work I've done with the GA about what's going on in schools. They have a different perception of what's happening. And people do have a different perception about what's taught. I think even with the Dan Gupta report, which we'll review, which we're going to talk about in a minute, there was, they expressed a hope that students would be taught about nature, which made me go back to the, um, the key stage two, the key stage three, four, and A-level um, specifications and, and programmes of study for geography. It's there. It just depends on what emphasis you put on it. So there is your understanding of both sides gives you a, a really unique view and, and a, I think a, a better understanding and the ability to pull things together because you can talk both sides. Yeah, I think so. And also understanding politics. You know, I've been up front with a lot of politicians. You know, I've been fortunate over the years. You know, I've worked with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and David Cameron and George Osborne. I've met Joe Biden. I've worked with Senator Bob Dole in America, a lot of politicians. I've met a lot of them. I've worked with them. I've got to know how they think. And I've organized events with them and <laughs> challenged them, you know, at certain times on what they're doing. And I think that's an important part. I'm not a politician. I don't necessarily want to be a politician. I haven't ruled it out before I depart this earth. Um, but I do have... You know, respect for politicians because it is very difficult in public life for a number of reasons and the decisions that you're having to take are not easy decisions it doesn't matter what it's about you know particularly at the moment with the way that you know, prime minister johnson has to take decisions about covid19 and the pandemic there's no winners in this mm-hmm. <laughs> you're going to please some and not please others and and the decisions are life and death decisions it's difficult but someone's got to stand up and someone's got to do it so um i do think an understanding of politics and how it works and the decision-making process and policy-making process is important um, to do the sort of job that I'm doing. I think while we're talking about good things that politicians have done, perhaps it's the time to talk about the, the Das Gupta review. Um, teachers won't be aware of it yet. I, I wasn't till you told me about it. I should have been because I should have known it was in development. But it's, um, it's a global review on the economics of biodiversity. And... You said yourself it's groundbreaking. It's got major implications for teachers of geography, particularly at A-level and GCSE. But I think, I think right the way through, as, we, as I've just said about um, the programmes of study, and it was the government introduced the, uh, the process. They, they requested the, uh, the review to be carried out, the UK government. That's right, isn't it? It is, yeah. You know, it's over two years in the making, and I think it is an important report. It, it, it's very similar to the Stern report on climate change. You know, when I was coming into the food industry in the early noughties, that was a groundbreaking report. Nicholas Stern's report for the first time said that we could not avoid climate change. And actually, if we did avoid it, it would be huge, not just environmental catastrophe, but economic catastrophe as a consequence. Um, it's taken a long time for what, some of what Nicholas Stern put in his report to really begin to, to register. I think it is, but it, and he could say it's too late. We'll talk about that a little later. Um, I think the Descupta report, I hope, will not gather dust in the same way, because I think it's a similar groundbreaking piece of work. And, and what he's trying to do, and the people that have worked on this, is really try and bring a connection between GDP economic growth and the whole financial you know, structures and accounting systems, uh, which are at the heart of our you know, policymaking and, and political processes, and connect them to the, the well-being, not just of people, but of the natural world. Because the natural world is feeding the ability for us to survive on this planet, but we are exploiting and destroying it at an unprecedented rate. And the, the current economic systems we have are basically subsidizing its destruction. We're not building in you know, uh, the, the impact of human economic growth on, on 
destroying wildlife and habitats in the way that we, we should be. Um, and, you know, and unless we do that urgently now, we're on a road to, quite frankly, oblivion. There's no question about that in my view. In a relatively short period of time, we're talking 30 to 50 years, we're going to have serious problems. So I do think this is a groundbreaking piece of work. And I hope it will begin to make policymakers, politicians, you know, banks and financial institutions around the world sit up and think. And we can begin to see how a global change, a framework change needs to come about. The one thing I think that I take away from this report is we need to change the global institutions, many of which were created in the post-war era. You know, for very good reasons, you know, the, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, you know, the, the United Nations, NATO, World Health Organization, all these bodies and institutions are, are terribly important. They serve their purpose, but they need to change. And, and the way they work needs to change. Otherwise, I think we're going to have some serious problems to address in a very short period of time. I think there's also a message, a strong message. You've, you've sort of alluded to it already. You talked about the power of young people. And... There's so much in here that teachers can use to inform their teaching, which they're already doing. I had a look at the exam board websites. I just had a troll through, a quick one, to look at uh, all of them deal, of course they do, with global development issues. All of them look at global systems. They talk about the global commons. Das Gupta talks about managing the global commons, managing the ocean, rebalancing the way that we look at economy. Students who are are asked to look at why GDP is a good measure in one sense, but what all its failings are as well. So why it isn't, because it doesn't take into the environment. So it, it encourages students, and hopefully the, the way the teachers present this will be a more holistic way of looking at it. And I think, well, says me, it's a while since I've taught, but GDP can be, a, and, and looking at that way of measuring development can be quite arid when you're teaching it. But when you start to tie it in and say, look, there are many other ways of looking at wealth, and you can look at the happiness index or whatever, mm. it begins to resonate better, I think, with the way that young people are thinking about the world themselves and how they want it to be in the future. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you, GDP as a, as a level of economic growth makes sense, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily take into account human well-being and, and, and the well-being of nature. And the key issue for me is, and this is the biggest challenge for young people. We're going to have to live in a world where we expect less to protect more. Um, because if we go on the way we are, we're saying that the economy of the nation I'm living in has to continue to increase my living standards, my access to education and healthcare, and my ability to earn money and buy more sofas and go on more holidays and buy more cars. We're going to have a problem. Um, but having said that, that's a massive challenge. It wasn't a challenge me and you had to live through. You know, we, we've grown up and we've been very, very fortunate. We've avoided wars. Up to this point, we've avoided pandemics. Um, and we've been able to live through a pretty strong period of economic growth to a large degree. And you know, I don't know about you, but I've traveled around the world. I've consumed. I've done lots of different things um, without even thinking about the consequences. You know, there were times when I was working in industry, when I traveled to America twice in a week. You know, I wouldn't do that now. I think about the consequences and the need to do it. Why don't I just do a bloody video call? But you know what I mean? It, it, it wasn't going through my mind at the time. But I do think a lot of young people today need to really think about, you know, the consequences of their actions and they're going to have to challenge them. So when I speak to students in universities and schools, I do ask that question. Sometimes I get answers about, sometimes I get a sort of bewilderment thing, you know, I can't really deal with that. And I can fully understand it, fully understand it, but it is a massive challenge for them. One of the things I picked out was that the review urged the world's governments to come up with a, a different form of national accounting from GDP. And I, I see sometimes in students' writing, when, I'm, when I've uh, looked at the the job of the quality mark evidence. There's 
there is some campaigning that goes on, but students will write to say to Bolsonaro in Brazil and say, it's an awful thing that you're deforesting. And they, they don't look at the other side of it, where this country wants to exploit its resources. They don't look at the, the global, um, it's, it's almost like the global commons for the, for, the, for the forest as well as the oceans. Is there a way of balancing that sort of, um, of improvement in other countries, which doesn't involve them in taking away the, their, their rainforest in the way that they've done? But, but we've done that. We've deforested we did the huge swathes of the UK, which should be a temperate deciduous forest. So it's, it's encouraging students to think a little bit more globally and to get that idea of the global commons, I think, more embedded at a lower, I think, lower down school rather than just dealing with it at, um, at the sixth form level where we, we introduce the global commons and it sounds like a, a difficult concept, but actually it's not. It's about holistically managing the world's resources and, and counting the environment as a resource which we, we give value to rather than just yeah. extracting from. I agree. And I think, you know, I think one thing that comes out of this scope to, to a degree, and it's a much broader issue to talk about today, is the need to look at your local area where you live and the need to try and invest your energy and time in protecting that. You know, if we looked at the last nine months alone, where we spent the four or five of those months in, in a very locked down state to a large degree, and that goes on. Um, people have had to get to know their local areas more and, and they've got more interest in the environment and wildlife and, and protection. And we've definitely seen that. It's registered most definitely. You know, the debate about HS2 is hotted up because HS2 makes little sense economically in a post-COVID world where people are not commuting and anything like the, like the numbers they might have done in the past. But the, the questions about you know, destroying ancient forests to build this 200 billion railway is really beginning to resonate with people. Um, I think that's a good thing. You know, we live in one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world in Britain because of industrial agriculture and sprawl, you know, removal of hedgerows and I could go on. There are lots of road building and, and air pollution and everything else. And lots of people don't know that. They think because they fly over Britain or travel on a train or drive in a car in the countryside, it all looks very green and pleasant. It's very managed land. And a lot of the species on it have disappeared or are in significant decline because of our actions. I think there are two things that need to happen. I think we need to be much more willing to stand up for our local communities and wildlife and conservation. That means there's a maybe a, a new role for local government in that process, in, in conservation organizations, looking more at local issues than just national issues. Um, on the international stage, I think there's a question for governments. You know, part of the problem we have, if you go to places like Kenya, and I spent time there over the years, you've got two issues. You know, you've got, let's stop trophy hunting, and the Kenyan government did that in the early 70s. But then you still got significant poaching. And then you have to have ecotourism to support, you know, protection of endangered species in, in various national parks. Yet you still get, you know, refugees coming in from Somalia, and I've seen them, and they're, you know, cutting down the trees and desperate for food and, you know, burning charcoal and snaring animals. Um, in my view, the international community has to start putting serious money in, in development aid into working with developing countries to protect the species and habitats in those countries, not for tourism, not for trophy hunting, but because we just have to do it. We have wildlife coral. We need to protect what's left. Now, we can do that. We've got money to do that. We've got the mechanisms to distribute the money. We've got the civil servants and the, and the policymakers to help African nations where there is corruption and problems in government to deliver that money on the ground. And we could employ local people to protect animals without having to rely on people coming in with guns to shoot them or having lots of vehicles running around after a giraffe with someone with a camera sticking out the window. Um, we have to think like that. 
you know, and I think we have to urgently think like that. It's crazy. Namibia this week is, is selling off, you know, a large number of its elephants and, and defending the decision because it says it needs to do so because, you know, there's questions about, you know, maintaining the numbers in the areas where they are. And, but that, to me, that's just wrong. We shouldn't be seeing African countries selling off its wildlife like that. We should be able to protect. And if we needed to move elephants from one place to another, then we could do that. But we don't need to be selling them off to safaris or to breeders in China that might use them for you know, meat or ivory production or whatever. There are lots of things that could happen to those elephants once they go into the international marketplace. So, yeah, I think more to be done at home, more recognition of the need to do that, but also how our taxpayers' money, bearing in mind the UK has a, a foreign aid budget of over £13 billion a year, uh, not much of that goes in wildlife conservation and biodiversity protection. Uh, and I think a lot more could, and I think Britain could have a much more global leadership role as a result, and America and Germany and other countries could follow. There's a lot of nice work done on local field work, me and my place, and who shares my place, uh, which can be done from from primary right the way through to to A level, depending on how deep you decide to look at how people perceive that place. And different people of different ages perceive them in different ways and how, how you have different access, depending on who you are and how you how you use that space. So there's a, there's a whole raft of work that can be done already within the specifications and within the national programs of study uh, that support what you just said, that, that focus is being done well in some schools. And it'd be nice, you said earlier, how you weren't sure whether by the time the, the students got left school and then became the parents in their 30s, whether they kept it going. So there's an interesting conversation to be had for there because most of the students are very ecologically aware. Mm. They'll write those sorts of letters. Do they still feel the same by the time they're in the 30s? You said it's an interesting question. It's a big question. You know, I've worked with a lot of young wildlife naturalists, writers, bloggers from the age of sort of 10 now through to the age of 18. It's been an important period of my career where I've seen them grow up. And they're now appearing on television regularly. They're writing books and they're becoming more influential. You know, they're working with ministers and things ahead of the COP26 summit in, in Glasgow, for example, in November. Um, I think that's a good sign, but it's a relatively small number of people. And to be quite frank, there are questions about equality and diversity in that movement. Is it still very white middle class? It is to a degree. Does it, we need to you know, deal with that reality in the nature movement? I think we do. How do you get disadvantaged children from lower social economic backgrounds, income backgrounds to, to be able to do these things as well? Um, but you do need individuals who will stand up and represent a youth voice but they're not a youth voice for long you know at the moment they're unique because they're young and the media will use them but then they become in their mid-20s and are they still going to feel the same and the media are not going to uh, bring them on in the same way um the question then is what they do with their lives going forward and that's when they become the decision makers of tomorrow as individuals about what they consume and buy but also in the professions they go into in the work they go into the decisions they will take in those industries or the public sector, wherever they might be. Um, I think what we need to do, and I say this to children quite a lot at different ages in schools, is that you are the ones who have to deal with these problems. We've created this for you, and it's not a very good situation we've left you in. But you know, I stand before you today at 50, and at 30 years age, I'm probably gonna be gone and, and, and left this world, and you're gonna be growing up having to struggle with the reality that's been left behind, the climate change reality, the species and habitat destruction reality, the fact that you know we don't have equal distribution of wealth on this planet. We don't have enough to go around. We need 1.6 planets to, 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 to cater uh, on an equal distribution of wealth basis of what we have in this country or the United States, for example. So that's impossible. And you come back to what I said earlier, we'll have to have less to protect more. 
But are, are political systems ready for that? Um, are individuals ready for that? Um, that's the big challenge that young people will have to think about as they grow up. Yes, and, and giving them a positive way forward rather than something that makes them feel oppressed by it all so that it's so negative that they can't see the wood for the trees, they can't see the way forward. It's a, it's a key one, and it's a worry for teachers. They don't want to be sounding too negative with any messages that they've got about climate change, about biodiversity. And yet, we've got... Both these facts came out. I was really surprised. 70% of all birds in the world are poultry. Mm. Only 30% are wild. Goodness mm. me. And uh, I think I've got this one right. Just 4% of the world's mammals are wild. The rest yeah, of yeah, yeah, and I think that you know the farming systems that are at the heart of Descupta Review, and I've been a part of throughout my career, are a massive problem. You know, I've been to South America when I was in the plant protection industry and working with Cargill and companies like that in the food sector, where I saw you know soil production systems and the fields are as big as counties in Britain, and the combine harvesters are lined up and they just go through the night and they bring all this commodity in, which is all you know forest and areas of biodiversity that have been cleared to process for meat production. It's absolutely insane. Uh, it's completely off the chart when it comes to sustainability. You know, a huge amount of water and land is needed to produce just a kilo of meat compared to a, a, a kilo of plant protein. We can't go on like that. Yeah, you know, if I drive up the road here or take up my bike up the road and look at the moment, I'll see a big queue of cars outside McDonald's and Kentucky Tried Chicken. You know, it's, uh, they're still doing roaring business in, in lockdown because people still want that type of food and they'll sit in the car and wait at the window if someone drops it in and their children are there eating it and consuming it. We can't go on like that. We just can't. And until governments suddenly step in and say, listen, we've got to do something about this. We are in real trouble. You know, Liz Bonin made a great program. Liz, I, I know as a naturalist and broadcaster well, I've worked with a great deal of respect for her. She made a very good program on the BBC about 18 months ago about the impact of the global meat production system and went around the world and looked at it. And the farming industry in this country went mad and, and lobbied the BBC to the degree where they've now removed it from the iPlayer so that students can't look at it. That's absolutely absurd. It was an extremely well put together piece of work that took years to commission go and produce it. And now you can't even find it. Now, John, if that's the situation, how are we ever gonna change? If an industrial lobby group like the NFU can say, well, we don't like that because it might put people off eating meat. So we think you should remove it. The point I'm trying to make to you is that we've got to change attitudes. We've got to change views. You know, it doesn't mean everyone's going to become vegan overnight, but plant-based food production is going to become increasingly important to the sustainability of the world. You know, the issue around meat might be that you can make it from a cell-based culture production system. And in my, in my view, government should be investing billions into that technology because at the moment it's mostly private investors. And you saw, I think, a, a reports a few weeks ago, the first sort of chicken nuggets appear in a Singapore restaurant at about hundred pounds a box or something. Obviously, most people aren't going to be able to afford that. But the issue is that you get that technology to a degree that you get that cost right down. Now, the only way that's going to happen, in my view, in the short term is if governments invest huge amounts of public money in it on behalf of taxpayers so that we can have a means by which we can produce meat for maintaining some of this demand in McDonald's and other places. It does not come from intensive livestock production systems. It comes in a factory and it's created from a cell based re reproduction system. And that technology is now available, but it needs a huge amount of investment to build it up. There won't be cruelty involved. There won't be disease control problems. Because the other thing you must remember is obviously we're living through a pandemic, but that pandemic didn't come out of the blue. It came out of our exploitation of the natural world. You know, as Professor John Bell said on Channel 4 News last week, I've got a great deal of time for. He's one of the few academics. Obviously, he's the, the pioneer behind the AstraZeneca ICI vaccine to a degree. Very straight-talking straight academic. 
but most of them have tiptoed around the issue of where this disease came from. And he just came out and said it came out of the backside of a pangolin. In a way, the way he, he said it with anger, you know, that we should have expected this and this was going to happen because of the way we're abusing the world. Now we've got to deal with it and we're playing catch up with a, a, a virus which is, you know, changing every few weeks effectively into, into new forms and shapes, which is causing all sorts of problems. So, you know, we can't go on like that. We can't go on with industrial production of agriculture and, and livestock because that's massively cruel, hugely damaging to the environment and has massive implications for more pandemics. We've got to move to a plant-based food production system quickly, use technology if we are going to produce meat to produce it in a cell-based culture system, in my view, and maybe allow a small amount of meat production in, in non-intensive forms, you know, with cattle outside reared in very good humane conditions for high-end restaurant-type businesses. That can work. So we've just got to change the way we do things. But I sometimes really struggle, I'm afraid, getting an industrial farming lobby like the NFU in this country to take that on board. And that is a great shame. For teachers, there, I think there's the, the, uh, the controversial issue, a whole series of them the teachers have to tackle and be, be aware of all the difficulties of, of dealing with controversial issues and how, um, how they... They worry themselves about whether they're they're being too much of an advocate for one story. So there's there's the there's that, and then there's critical thinking that's I think important. The DfE funded a project which the Geographical Association presented around the country to teachers, a critical critical thinking for achievement it was called. And teachers were saying, I presented some of the courses, teachers were saying, this is brilliant stuff. I just don't, I'm not sure I've got enough time to spend on looking at the different aspects of this topic because I've got all this knowledge. So we've got, the, the knowledge curriculum is right. You, you can't think about nothing. You've got to think about practical stuff. But when you start talking about being critical, critical thinking, You've got to have several sides. You've got to be able to look at it. You've got to be able to wait up. That's taken an awful long time when for an A-level question, they want you to write these five points about the global commons. Mm. So there's, there's, there is an issue for teachers uh, uh, trying to deal with controversy, critical thinking, and uh, a heavily laden knowledge curriculum. But I don't think yeah. it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible. And, you know, I think it, it, it's a case of, of allowing students to think for themselves, to, to look at these issues and, and make decisions. As I said at the beginning of this discussion, a lot of it is about their own lifestyles and about the decisions they want to make, but they have to make informed choices. You know, you, you can't go on with the view that everything in the system that we're growing up with is, is, is completely normal. The big debate about COVID-19 is when do we get back to some form of normality after this pandemic? What does that normality mean? Does it mean that we travel as much as we used to travel by aeroplane and car? Does it mean that we consume at the same rate we consumed before to get our economy moving? Or do we actually say we use this moment in time to actually review where we are and think about the consequences of our actions? You know, in my view, you know, we should not be traveling by aircraft as much as we, as we have in the past. That means a lot of airlines and, and travel businesses might go under, but we need to recreate new businesses around that. Um, we need to be looking at how we can travel more locally. Can we use rail more than we can use car, for example? But that doesn't necessarily mean HS2, because HS2 is a fast rail system for business commuters. So not 45 minutes off London to Birmingham, Leeds to Manchester. It's not for a leisure sort of way of traveling. We need more branch lines, as you know, to be reopened, John, that when we were growing up were being closed because the government decided that those lines weren't necessary. We would just put all the, the cars on the road. We know that air mm -hmm. pollution is terrible. 
you know, I'm working with some of the mayoral candidates in London at the moment on environmental policy issues. And I'm saying to them that you've got to look at London as what it will be in the post-pandemic world. It's one of the largest cities in the world. Um, it's not going to have six, seven million commuters going in and out every day in the way that they did before and spend all their money in shops and restaurants. That's not going to happen. So you need to look at the centre of London differently. Can you make it a place where people can live and breathe and work more locally rather than just, you know, commute in in their millions with all the pollution and energy use that that brings with it? How do we make homes affordable in London so people can afford to live there? Who are the workers at the moment that are keeping the city going? You know, the, the health workers, the fire workers, you know, the, the transport workers, all of whom are on salaries, they can't afford homes. How do we ensure that we don't have a, an air pollution problem that makes the city almost unbreathable? So we remove cars, we move to electric vehicles, we pedestrianise areas of the city. There are a lot of good things that you could do with London. It could still be a hub of centre and arts and leisure. But you know what? It could be a living, breathing city again. And I think that would be a good thing after this pandemic. Um, so, I, you know, you need to think, can we re-green it? Can we have more green corridors, more parks, more urban nature reserves? Can we turn this great metropolis into a green city? Because it has huge wildlife in its boundaries, London. In, you know, there's badgers and there's foxes and there's deer and there's birds of prey. There's amazing wildlife in the city. So all of these things, in my view, are relevant in our urban areas as much as they are in our countryside. And I think actually London's interesting in the mayoral election this year in London. Don't want HS2 in my view. It's not a good project. People can differ with me on that. Heathrow extension, well, it was mad anyway, but it seems even crazier now that we've got 90% of the planes on the ground, that we expand Heathrow even more. We've got to look to the future. And I think that's where young people, again, must challenge politicians as they grow up. There are a whole raft of, of definitions. I'm, I'm not leaping into an, another area, but there's a whole raft of definitions that students will come across that that they, they need to be thinking about, like, like just the term development, like the term economic growth. Mm. What do we mean by that? And then even, even more challenging is what do we mean by sustainable growth, <laughs> as well as measuring development through GDP, which, is, which, which sends us down an economic path that completely ignores the environment. So... There is still no agreement necessarily, is there, on what we mean by development? No, not at all. As I said earlier on, you know, what do you do about the hundreds of millions of people that are living in abject poverty? You know, the one thing that we could say with China and India and the way that their economies have grown is they've lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, and that's a good thing. But then their demand for the world's resources as nations has massively increased. Their carbon emissions have massively increased. It's a vicious circle we've created. Uh, I'm not certain there's an answer to it. Global population increase alone is a massive problem. I think we're at 7.6 billion at the moment, and we'll be heading for 9.5 billion by the time 2050 comes along, if I get to 80 years of age. You know, it was, I think, 2.3 billion on the world, in the world when I was born in 1970. And John, probably a similar time scale for your life. It's incredible, that growth of population. And that demand that that's put on the world has been immeasurable. Um, and, you know, Descupta talks in his review about, you know, looking at reproduction rights and educating women and ensuring that they can control their reproduction and, and, and birth rates will drop. We know birth rates drop significantly in countries that have a, a certain amount of economic growth. Yeah. Um, if you look at, you know, Britain, Germany, France, Japan, for example, which for years has had almost a negative rate of 
reproductive growth because they've had a very tight immigration policy as well. Um, but in Africa, growth in the population is, is rapidly expanding in areas where there's very precious species and habitats to be protected and the resources are being exploited, not just by African nations, but by China, India, Europe and North America and other countries as well, from mobile phones to oil, gas mm -hmm. and everything else as you appreciate. So we're constantly in this vicious circle. I, I, I can't say there's an easy answer to it. Population in itself is a massive challenge. But at least when people start to understand the challenge more, they then start to appreciate the need for taking action. And it's getting that challenge to people to begin with. And I, I think we do that in geography reasonably well, but it's seen as a rather academic sort of, this is what you do in your subject. And it needs to be widened out into, this is more than just what you do in this lesson. This is... The climate action strikes that occurred, you know, with Greta Thunberg and others who are sort of creating this global movement that brought school children regularly onto the streets, you know, did cause some concern in the education system before the, the pandemic. Yes, you know, the kids were regularly going on strike and, and, and making their voice heard. Some people were saying, oh, it's just the bandwagon that some young people are, are jumping on because they get a day off school. <laughs> no doubt there might be some <laughs> that did that. But also, I think most of the people, to be fair, were there because they cared about the issues and suddenly wanted to have their voice heard. Um, I think the tragedy of the pandemic, many tragedies with loss of life and economic problems, is also that some of that movement has just been stimmed because suddenly it was going, it was moving, and suddenly it's just had to stop because of, of the way the world has stopped. Um, but I think it was important that we were giving young people a voice. I think it was beginning to resonate with politicians. You know, I don't want to, I'm talking to young people at the moment about a voice that we could give them at in some shape or form in Glasgow at COP26. What I don't want to see is that that just becomes another talking shop for you know, policymakers and international politicians and nothing much comes from it. I think it, it, you know, Joe Biden's right in saying that, you know, as far as he's concerned and John Kerry, the climate change ambassador, he's appointed that this is a, a milestone event. You know, we don't have any coming back from this. We're rather going to take the really tough decisions or, or we are really in a very bad place. I think Boris Johnson understands that, despite his many flaws in my view as a politician, like all oh, he has flaws. But I do think he has an interest in this. And I think he recognises it's his moment in time to host this summit and to do something. And I hope that you know, the pandemic has you know, focused attention as well on what we need to do. But young people need to be given a voice. Mm. You can't just say they don't matter because they're the ones that have to grow up. They're the ones that will be taking the decisions politically and in business as well and all the other things because they will be running these companies. They'll be our prime ministers and our presidents and our ministers. So, you know, it's like we're only 20 years away from those people replacing us. So somehow we have to give them that voice now. I want to change the subject a little bit because there are other things that you've been involved with and, and um, with your wildlife con conservation work, one of the, the areas that you were most heavily involved with, and there's new news come out just in the past couple of weeks, is to do with badger conservation. And you talked about badger culling, but actually there's some good news about that, isn't there? Well, the government have indicated they want to stop the issue of four-year coal licences from 2022 onwards. The problem is that could mean that hundreds of thousands of badgers still die before we finally see this policy end. You know, my view is that I think it could end by the next election in 2024, 2025. But by then we could have killed over a quarter of a million badgers. You know, that would be the biggest destruction of protective species in living memory. It will have cost, you know, probably well over hundred million pounds of taxpayers' money. It will push the species in parts of England to the verge of local extinction in areas where it's inhabited since the Ice Age. Um, and to my view, it hasn't actually contributed significantly to lowering bovine TB in cattle. This debate has gone on for over 40 years. When I wrote the book Badger to Death, I look back at it from the 1970s when we were killing badgers, blaming them for TB. Really, 
I think the one thing we've learned from COVID-19 is that, you know, you control disease not by slaughtering, but by vaccinating and putting in place control measures on movements and gathering, you know, and, and, and that's the same in control of TB in human populations, which we've dealt with largely by vaccination, and it will be the same in cattle and wildlife. You know, if you house cattle inside in large numbers for six months of the year in damp conditions, they will spread TB to each other. If you move those cattle across the country in large numbers, they'll spread TB and they'll pour it into wildlife, into badgers, into foxes, into rats, into domestic dogs and cats. We know that's what's happened. So it's not the badgers' fault it got this disease. It was at the, the sharp end of industrial agriculture that came about from our early membership of the European Union, where the, the intensity of our domestic cattle systems grew massively. Farmers that were small in number with cows went out of business and you have to get 500 or more to a degree to make it a viable project. And then you have, you know, all the subsidies would allow you to set up milk parlors and everything else. So you, you, you became much more industrialized in the way you produced the products that we have in our supermarkets. But it came at a cost for wildlife. So badger culling is just one issue. But to me, it's at the very heart of our food production systems and agriculture. You know, we continue to farm in the way we have in the last 50 years. We will destroy wildlife to a large degree, even more around most of the agricultural systems in our country. Remember, you know, if you take out all the sort of small levels of national parks and wildlife reserves and our towns and cities, the most of our land is agricultural farmland. There's not much left. So the idea that you've got large areas that we can play around with in this country is just not reality. So the badger is there, but it's, it's going to completely come into conflict with farmers unless we can change it. The one thing we want to do with badger culling is bring it to an end. <coughs> vaccinate cattle, vaccinate badgers which we can do effectively using BCG vaccines and then improve the testing of cattle and the movement controls and the biosecurity measures, herd immunity, all the things that we're hearing about with COVID-19 is exactly mm -hmm. applicable. The one thing I do think is the prime minister has finally got his head around that because he intervened a few years ago because his partner, Carrie Simmons, was very much against it. And there's all the political issues around that. But I do think he understands that now. And I hope that we're getting to a point where we can really finish this once and for all. But just a final word on badgers, we need to learn a lesson. We can't just continue to do what we've done with badgers with other species. We can't farm and destroy wildlife at the same time. We've got to farm in harmony with nature. How is it done abroad? How, how do they deal with the badger problem there? Because one of the issues has been with the, the, the concern about having cattle that were vaccinated, they wouldn't sell because they, yeah. were, they were somehow tainted, which means all of us who are now, well, not quite yet, but COVID vaccinated, but we'll all be tainted. It, it's, a, it's a bizarre argument. But it's part, you know, so it is a bizarre argument to a degree. Some of that would be ended by the end of live animal exports, which is a horrible business anyway. So, you know, and I think that's on the cards of government consultation. So I think end of live animal exports and it will end some of the arguments not for being fencing vaccination of cattle in Britain for the domestic consumption market, you know, dairy meat products. Um, but yeah, in, in Europe, they've tended to deal with TB in a, in a, in a way they would, if there was an outbreak in a cow, they'd just take down the whole herd and destroy the whole herd and they'd stop farming there for a period of time. And that's very effective. In this country, we didn't want to do that. We did that for foot and mouth. We yeah. had the foot and mouth outbreak in 2001. We destroyed the national herd. Millions of sheep and cattle were destroyed. Uh, the countryside was cut off for six months. An election was delayed. Over six and a half billion was paid out in, in compensation to farmers and, and rural businesses. It was huge. Um, Government don't want to repeat that. So it's like a drip, drip type thing. We're not really dealing with the problem. We kill some cattle, we kill some badgers. We, they, they, it's painfully slow and the problem doesn't really get resolved. Um, so that's part of why you've not seen a similar problem. You know, um, the badger is protected in Britain because of all the persecution that it went through you know, prior to its protection in the 1970s from badger baiters putting dogs down badger sets and things horrible. In Germany and France, it's not protected in the same way or in Ireland. Uh, and badgers are persecuted and, 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 and sadly, you, you know, the badger population is under real threat across Europe as well. I didn't, I didn't know that. that that's, that's interesting. 
I did, I did do a, a bit more research uh, about around the Vision for Nature report. This is a, a Vision for 2050. Um, and they did some research, they did some market research, and two-thirds, I think, 16 to 34-year-olds, so that's quite interesting, because those have spread through after they've left school, agree the environment's a top voting priority. And you mentioned that with, with all that time ago with Tony Blair. So it is about teenagers being, and, and young adults being mightily concerned, but the Friends of the Earth report also talks about them feeling pretty helpless and powerless. They don't know what quite to do. I think the climate strike was, was one thing, but they see governments and large corporations are the ones who make the vital decisions. How do young people, how do you see young people and, and teachers supporting them, put pressure to, for that to change? You can bring about political change. I give you, bring you back to the, to the, to the 2017 election. I'm trying to get my head around how many elections we've had. But if when, when Theresa May called that snap election, um, one of the issues that came up in the campaign was fox hunting. Um, obviously, we had the Fox Hunting Act you know, introduced in the Labour government in 2004, but we've had lots of loopholes in it. And the government had said as a coalition government and the Conservative government that they wanted to repeal that Act of Parliament. And that was still in the manifesto, effectively, when Theresa May went for that snap election. It was still a commitment. And we organised a march in London that brought thousands and thousands of people to the gates of Drowning Street, probably the biggest wildlife protection march ever organised in the capital, uh, which I helped put together and spoke at. And out of the back of that, we got a huge amount of media coverage. It was the biggest protest march in the campaign as well, the election campaign. It got coverage across the UK and international media, New York Times and everything. <coughs> and it came up on the doorstep that when people were you know, basically campaigning, fox hunting came up and a lot of young people voted for the first time in that election and they took it out on the Conservative government. They lost you know, seats like Stroud. They lost Kensington and Chelsea. They lost seats you know, that Canterbury that they'd held for years, decades. Um, and, you know, in the aftermath of that election result, there was a lot of sort of head scratching done in the Conservative Party. And they realised that actually the fox hunting issue had become really toxic and actually had lost them seats. And the other issue that had come up during the campaign was the ivory issue, where the government was sort of siding with the uh, antiques ivory trade to put off legislation preventing the sale of ivory in the UK, which we've now got an act of parliament that's yet to be implemented all these years later doing exactly that, which is good. Um, so, you know, those two issues did resonate. They did bring, you know, hundreds of thousands of first time voters to the polls and they did have an impact on a number of key seats, which actually brought about the end of Theresa May's majority in government. Since then, the political parties, not just Labour, of course, in opposition, but the Conservatives in government have decided they want to give these issues higher priorities. So the, the government basically committed in its last manifesto to no longer repealing the Hunting Act. They brought in the Ivory Act to stop the trade in ivory. So what I'm saying to you is actually we did bring about change politically. We did force the government to alter. We did, they did pay a price. So, you know, what we need to do is continue to do that. And, and we can, John. But I think that's what I would say to young people campaigning on issues, getting them up the political agenda, getting them onto the doorstep during elections at local national level doesn't matter. But it's really positive, actually. I've not thought about it quite as positively as that. That's, that's cheered me up a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to now talk about something tiny compared to something quite so big. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder whether the bees get as much um, love and affection as perhaps some of the, the larger animals that you could sell. Isn't that fox cute? But um, if we look at the use of neonicotinoids, that was banned. It's currently banned by the EU. But it, mm. I was reading that they're allowing 
the, the, the government are now allowing emergency use of neonicotinoids on sugar beet. Yeah. So we've, we've had a reversal there. I, I don't know how you feel about that. I, I, this is the criticality of it all. You've got an economic argument. You've got um, an argument, uh, an environmental argument. And here, the economic argument in this, this small instance has won out. Yeah, and it's an area that I struggled with when I was in the crop protection industry, as you can imagine. Neonicotinoid insecticides I spoke about a lot in the media. And at the time, we were seeing more and more evidence to indicate there was a problem with these products. But remember, they were developed in the 80s and early 90s, really as a means of reducing the impact of pesticides. Because if you sprayed over the top of a crop, you know, it would hit non-target species that go into rivers and water supplies. So what the idea was is you'd actually encase the seed of the crop and plant it underground with the pesticide. So as the crop grew, pesticide would do its work at the, the seed, the root level, not above land. And I think that in itself was seen as a much more sustainable and safer way of dealing with crop protection. And for years, people accepted that to a large degree. But then what we started to see is more evidence to say that in the pollen of the crops, like oilseed rape, that when the pollinators, bees and other pollinators came along, it affected their reproductive systems, their navigation systems, so they couldn't find their way back to their groups and that they would die in larger numbers and that would have an impact. And as you know, bees and other pollinators are hugely important for the reproduction of crops as well. Um, it was a struggle in the crop protection industry because, you know, there were huge amounts of investment put into these products in Europe and the United States and, and a lot of interest in keeping them on the market. When I left the industry, I was of the view that it was only a matter of time before they were removed. In the end, two years after I left, you know, the European Commission, the European Food Safety Authority brought in a ban on the use of neonicotinoid insecticides across Europe's agriculture systems. They're still allowed through the green and some immunity use sectors. That's including when you go into your garden sectors, you can buy spray products and things that contain them. And certain local authorities can still use them. And also they're allowed under derogation. The derogation that's been applied is for British sugar because they need the sugar beet as far as they're concerned for their sugar supply system. I think over 50% of the UK sugar beet crop goes into British sugar supply and then obviously into a lot of the food products we can shoot. Mm. Um, it's not just Britain that supplied that derogation. A number of other European member states have as well. But I don't agree with it. I think it was wrong. I think it brings out all the, the worst in the, the sort of crop protection industries, lobbying of government, working with the food chain to overrule, you know, issues around the environment and protection of the environment. I, I've been supporting and talking to the Wildlife Trust recently about, you know, what they're looking to do on this, including potential judicial review against the government on this action. I don't think this was the right decision to take now. I think there were alternatives available. But some of those alternatives, John, are not easy either, because, you know, you, you come back to genetic modification and you know, if I give you an example of one thing that I remember from my days in the crop protection industry, I went to Belgium once to look at a, a trial of a genetic modified potato crop. That basically, potato blight is a huge problem for potato growers. You know, in, in damp conditions, that the crop rots in the ground. And a lot of organic potato growers, for example, every year would come to our manufacturers I represented and they would get copper sulfate and put it on the ground to protect the Copper sulfate is terrible. It's a non-synthetic pesticide, naturally occurring mineral. But if you put it in the, in the ground, it's really toxic and quite dangerous. Yet they were using this to protect organic spuds to, to prevent them rotting. What this trial project in, in Belgium was trying to prove is if you genetically modified the crop, you wouldn't need to put any pesticide on it or any copper. Actually, you could stop the blight within the crop and it was successful, but it had to be covered with barbed wire and it had, you know, searchlights and dogs because protesters had gone in there and trampled it and tried to destroy it, saying that this was Frankenstein food and it would poison us all. So there was an argument, actually, that it, it was the opposite. It could be really beneficial. That debate has to come back. And it is, you know, already you're seeing this genetic engineering and, and whatever you might call it debate is returning. And you come back to some what Desk was saying in his review. We have to look at how we produce foods. 
and, and, and some of this technology will have to be applied. Uh, and there's no perfect solution. If you don't want neonics, you might need to look at some form of genetic modification of crops to avoid the use of pesticides on things like sugar beet. Uh, and that's a decision that we'll have to see in the future as well. When I was teaching, I used to call them wicked problems. Uh, their solutions, there might be several solutions to your problem, but there's somebody who's going to take damage, whatever you do. And I always used to say this, I, I, I can't be doing with this. There's no right or wrong answer in this. There are lots of different right answers with different losers. And there are some, sometimes there are some that, that are just wrong. Yeah, I agree. So it, you can't say there are no right or wrong answers. There might be several rights with different implications and two or three, well, they're just utterly wrong for whatever reason. And that's something I think for students to understand. This is why I've made this decision. These are the implications of it, and these are the people who lose. And I've justified yeah. it in that way. That's a, a The teacher really has to look at that as well. You know, if a yeah. teacher's going to have a debate about neonicotinoid insecticides and their use, they do need to look at the issues of genetic modification of foods and genetic engineering of crops as well. You can't look at, you know, these two in isolation. And I think to do justice to the debate, students need to understand both of those issues. And then they also need to understand, you know, the industrial production of food. Do we need this amount of sugar? Beet? What are we using it for? Blah, blah, blah. You know, there are lots of different issues to debate in that sense. <laughs> well, let's finish on a positive because we've, uh, we've probably just about run out of time. And it's been absolutely fascinating. We've, we've, had, we've had peaks and troughs in this conversation, I think. There's times when I thought, oh, crikey, that's overwhelming. And other times when you've given me some hope for, for me, for teachers, for young people. So as a, as a summary, what would be your, your key messages to take away from this today for, for teachers who are working with young people in, in geography, but also um, in eco-clubs eco and, and other areas where they touch on the environment? You know, I think teachers have a hugely important job and it's a very difficult job for them at the moment because of this pandemic, you know, remote learning is very hard. The, the risks of returning to school are pressing and, and, and very deep. And I have great sympathy for the teaching profession at the moment. But I think I hope that we understand as a result of this pandemic how important it is. Um, teachers themselves are having to go through the struggles of life, the pandemic at the moment, but also all the issues that you know we're talking about concern them as well. I suppose what they need to do is pass their concerns and wisdom in, into their profession, into the classroom and, and, and ensure that the students in front of them, in my view, get a real good overview of, of the challenges and opportunities facing this world. You know, I see it as a sort of three tsunami situation at the moment. Tsunami number one is the COVID-19 pandemic. Tsunami number two is the economic consequences of that pandemic, which will change the way we work, the way we communicate, the way we live. Normal will not be the same normal as what we had in March 2020. That's not all going to be bad because there might be areas by which we can significantly reduce our global environmental impact. We maybe can you know, make local communities more important. We're going to spend more time with our families. There's lots of good things that could come out of that. Um, so I think that you, you need to look at it from that point of view. And the final tsunami is the climate change one is the fact that our planet is warming up rapidly, that we're destroying wildlife and habitats at an unprecedented rate. We have a global population increase, which really is not sustainable if we're going to continue to consume at the rate we are. Um, so I think the teachers have to look at all of that and get it across to their students. You're living through a, a tumultuous times of economic, social, political change. But there's always, you know, areas for hope. 
you know, we went through four years of the Trump presidency, which were difficult to watch, even though at times you might think they were entertaining. Um, and, you know, Joe Biden, I'd met in, in my areas of work in, in, in years gone by, and I always thought he was a decent, hardworking man who had been a political insider that had seen everything, tragedy in his life. He lost his daughter and his wife in the early 70s. He lost his son, Bo, just a few years ago. But he continued to go forward. And, and I know Barack Obama said something that resonated with me. You don't choose the time to be president. The child chooses you. And I don't think it was the right time four years ago for, for him to go up against Trump. He'd lost his son. I know why he didn't stand in that election. But for some reason, it was right for him to do so now. And for a man that's 78, because we're talking about young people. But you know what? We're too quick to write off people of an older age. That's why this debate about protecting society, where young people are having to sacrifice so much to protect older people, is so important. You know, Captain Tom Moore died yesterday. What an incredible man to do what he did in his hundredth year. What an impact he had. On, on, on this country. But if you look at Joe Biden, I think 78 years of age, most of us would be you know, happy just to be at home with our pipes and our slippers. He's taken on the biggest challenges of the world. But if you look what he's done in the last two weeks, you know, he's re signed up for the Paris Accord, stopped the XL pipeline, which is a huge project from, you know, from Canada on this issue of oil and gas supply, which was, I think, the right thing to do. You know, made climate change a national security priority appointed John Kerry, a very senior, respected diplomat and former presidential candidate, to become that envoy. Um, and I think he's just really started to talk about changing the reliance on fossil fuels, moving over to low carbon economy, doing things in the United States. He's on borrowed time. But you know what? Having met him and understood a bit about him, I think he's going to squeeze everything he has out of his last few years of life to make those changes and to bring back that global commitment that we need to see from the US to lead the rest of the world in the right direction. So I do feel optimistic that change can come about. But that only came about because a lot of young people decided in the United States that they didn't want another four years of Trump. Remember, Trump got 70 million votes, yeah. more than any other candidate other than Biden who got more than any other candidate in history as president. So it was close, a lot closer than many thought. And, it, you know, you come back to what you said earlier, John, can young people make a difference? Yes, they can. Uh, but, you know, and our democratic systems, oh, a few weeks ago in America, and we saw those scenes on Capitol Hill, it shocked the world, but you can move on and it can get better. So this year, I think we will have some significant global change and commitments to protecting the world, which young people will play a key role in at a time of, of a pandemic that has caused huge suffering and, and, and huge shocks to the whole world. Um, and I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that change can come, that those young people's voices must be heard and teachers have a role to play. Don't stimmy them. Don't hold them back, which is why, you know, just to finish with, it was great to be talking to you today because of the Pearson World Change Rewards program. I think to see a, an educational services company of that kind to, to invest in young people and, and to, you know, charities like Born Free I work for working with young people to me is so important. We all have to step up businesses charities, politicians, teachers, and we need to inspire, engage, and give them the opportunity to have their voice heard. That's the most important thing for me, most definitely. We must put the link in for that, because I, I, as you say, there was some fantastic work came out of that. I'd yeah. almost forgotten to mention that, and, and it, was, it was really nice trawling through the website and looking at what they've done. Yeah, um, so. It, so that's, I hope, an optimistic note to end on. I it think it is. is. And, and thank you very much for finishing on that one and reminding me, of course, about because there was so much good stuff in there. They're so positive. And, and I think that is the best place to stop. So it's been a great pleasure listening to you today, talking to you today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's Jog Pod. 
During these challenging times, don't forget the wealth of resources available on the GA website, geography.org.uk, including our teaching resources which are currently free to access for all. You might also want to look at our Geography from Home section, which aims to support teachers, parents and guardians whilst children and young people are learning from home. There's also a growing selection of web inquiries, online events and quizzes all available for free on our new sister site, geographyeducationonline.org.